This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. For many, this week will be about last-minute presents, complicated travel plans, and the annual dusting off of favorite family recipes. But for one group of politicians in Washington, D.C., this week was all about work and important work at that. We have every confidence that the work of this committee will help provide a roadmap to justice. The House January 6th Select Committee held its final meeting on Monday, voting to adopt formally the report it had been working on for the last 18 months. Their conclusion... Anyone who incites others to engage in rebelling, assists them in doing so, or gives aid and comfort to those engaged in insurrection is guilty of a federal crime. The panel referred Donald Trump and some of his top advisers to the Department of Justice on a string of criminal charges in connection with the former president's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Although anticipated for a while, this is a genuinely unprecedented moment in US political history. And my colleague Hugo Lowell has been following this from the beginning and he's here to break down exactly what it all means. I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is a special edition of Politics Weekly America. This town has been waiting so long now for the conclusions of this investigation. It's been 16 months and seemingly every week there has been a new development in the January 6th investigation. So I think people are really actually exhausted and now they just want all the findings to come out and for the investigation to come to an end. As you say, it's been a long, exhaustive, but also, as you say, exhausting process. Uh, over a thousand witnesses, more than a million documents. I think more. they issued more than 100 subpoenas, those huge hearings, which you told us about before on this podcast. Explain to us why what, the, what is understood is going to be the outcome, this criminal referral, why that is such a big deal, even when you look at the big sweep of presidential history. You know, this has been a really precedent-shattering investigation on multiple fronts. You know, the way that Congress has gone about examining January 6th, the way that this select committee was established. And so this committee making criminal referrals, criminal and civil referrals, they will make them in a way that Congress has never done before and to a target. 
that has never been referred before by Congress. You know, this is a former president. Donald Trump knowingly and corruptly repeated election fraud lies, which incited his supporters to violence on January 6th. And we like to talk about how, you know, Trump's no longer in office and how his powers are diminished and how, he, you know, he shouldn't matter to the Republican Party anymore. And yet, of course, he does. And so I think there is real symbolism and a real kind of explosive moment of reckoning for, you know, Republicans that Congress is referring the former president for criminal activity. Of course, these referrals don't mean anything meaningful to the Justice Department, which has already opened its own criminal investigations into January 6th. But I think even the Justice Department will sit up and take note of how the committee has conducted its investigation. They will look at these referrals and the evidence presented in it. And I think it will provide a bit of a roadmap into how the Justice Department might consider a prosecution against Donald Trump. So very important, as you say, uh, the justice, these are merely referrals. They're just in effect, you know, petitioning the Department of Justice saying, look, we think that you should look into this, but it's not, uh, you know, it's still going to be the Justice Department's decision. But the charges that are being referred, as you say, unprecedented, never before against a former president, a referral of this kind. And the charges just read so gravely. We believe that there is more than sufficient evidence to refer former President Donald J. Trump John Eastman and others for violating Title 18, Section 371. This statute makes it a crime to conspire to defraud the United States. Charges of insurrection, obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, and conspiracy to defraud the United States. That's our understanding. I mean, those are, it doesn't get much more serious than that. What so far is being the response from Trump world to the gravity of these of these referrals? I actually caught up with a couple of people in Trump world over the weekend when the committee was still deliberating its final uh, referrals list. And publicly, their response is always that this is a witch hunt and you know, this is a partisan investigation. Uh, but I think it's always notable that they don't actually push back at the substance of the charges. They don't go, these referrals are nonsense because Trump never obstructed an official investigation or Trump didn't uh, conspire to fool the United States. They just say that this investigation is partisan. And I think that's kind of reflective of how Trump world and Trump legal really views the myriad investigations into Trump. You know, they are less concerned about January 6th than they are for, say, about like the Mar-a-Lago documents case, which I think is problematic for him. But they are concerned nonetheless. And even though they have a lot of bombast in public, in private, they are very serious about it. They, they know the gravity of these statutes. I think they're trying to figure out what kind of potential defenses they will have to mount if it comes to a prosecution. I mean, this is really real. I, there's no doubt about it. And for whatever Trump board says in public, they know in private that this is a really big deal. So let's talk about the, the, the basis for these charges, for these referrals, rather, um, because they haven't come out of nowhere, that long process, all that evidence. What specifically is the evidence that the committee have been able to point to, that future prosecutors would point to, that came out of these long hearings that justify this decision of the committee and that could be used by prosecutors to substantiate their case? Yeah, we reported uh, on this on Friday when, when we broke the, the news. 
it builds upon the judicial rulings that the committee has had or been able kind of been able to win in federal court. You know, for the first thing, an obstruction of an official proceeding, um, the statute basically makes it a crime to corruptly obstruct or impede any official proceeding or attempt to do so before the United States, uh, or in this case, Congress. And they saw the committee looked at the statute and thought, well, you know, Trump really did try and impede this official proceeding. And even if he wasn't successful, the very attempt to do so is what makes it a crime. And so, you know, they go, they've over the course of these witness interviews and uh, with with White House counsel, with aides, with advisors, they really have tried to drill down to A, the intent. And then when it comes to the second part of that statute, attempting to impede an official proceeding, well, the committee thinks they have the evidence for that as well. Evidence of this can be seen in the testimony of President Trump's own White House counsel and several other White House witnesses. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. And they kind of point to things like how Trump basically was trying to delay the certification right up until the, the, the Congress met to certify the election, you know, whether it's pressuring Pence. The vice president consistently resisted and repeatedly told the president that he did not possess the authority to do what President Trump directed. This culminated in an angry phone call on the morning of January 6th between President Trump and Vice President Pence, during which the former president repeatedly berated Mr. Pence by cursing and leveling threats. Whether it was trying to put together a, a, a number of fake slates of electors to create the impression that maybe the outcome was in doubt when it wasn't. And so putting it all together, the committee effectively came to the conclusion on that first statute that Trump had met the elements of the offence. And Donald Trump seems like the kind of guy who's careful not to leave a whole lot of paper behind him. Not, he's not a guy who puts a lot down in writing himself. But as I understand it, a big help for the investigators, for the committee, was the fact that his aides had uh, either left behind paper or gave crucial testimony that pointed the finger at him. Yeah, that's right. Look, you know, the committee had its first breakthrough with Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff. Uh, Meadows was subpoenaed October, November last year. He produced documents and communications to the committee uh, about a year ago in December last year. And the communications and the text messages in particular were really key because they provided, you know, a structure for the committee to work around. You know, they could see what the chief of staff's office was having to engage with uh, in the week's after the 2020 election, all the way up up until January 6th. You know, the committee was never able to get testimony from Trump and they were never able to really get documents from Trump, but they were able to get materials from the Trump White House archives um, being held by the National Archives in Washington. Trump aides were taking notes because they knew to create a paper record in order to insulate themselves from liability down the road. And it started during the Mueller investigation. It started with Comey, the FBI director. And in fact, that, you know, when he met with Trump and Trump wanted him to pledge his loyalty to him early in 2017, Comey was so freaked out about what he had just heard. He memorialized it uh, on notes, which later came out um, and, you know, which he basically put out to, to insulate himself. And so I think a lot of similar things are happening at the end of the administration where, you know, White House counsels were taking notes. And Trump always was annoyed by this because, as you say, he never 
he never took notes. He issued only vague commands. He he wanted the aides to know what he wanted without issuing direct orders that might put him in legal trouble. But clearly the aides and the White House counsels were very attuned to this and were taking notes the entire time and the committee basically got access to all of those records. He should have realised it is a permanent Washington sport, which is cover your backside and people will do it even if they are your most pledged loyalists. Uh, they're always going to look out for themselves and that did seem to be crucial in this case. And you mentioned some of the very big names who appeared. I mean, people might think that this was all about January the 6th. And one thing that's really come through is that this was a long running process, long predating the events of the 6th of January itself. Ex-President Trump's decision to declare victory falsely on election night wasn't a spontaneous decision. It was premeditated. In fact, the Select Committee's final meeting was on December the 19th, and that will have marked exactly two years since Donald Trump sent that tweet, which became so crucial in this investigation, which is when he said, invited people effectively to come to Washington, urging his supporters to come. Be there, we'll be wild, he tweeted. Between December 19th and January 6th, the president repeatedly encouraged his supporters to come to Washington. I mean, what is the finding of the committee in terms of how long running this conspiracy that they allege had been in train for before the date of the culmination on January the 6th? It's a really interesting legal question, and the committee doesn't expressly answer it. Um, and they kind of leave it up to the Justice Department to figure out the specifics of the conspiracy. They're confident that there was a conspiracy based on everything they've seen. But because they are, are not a law enforcement body, they don't go that step. Um, they just kind of present the evidence. But what has emerged from the evidence is that there were various key moments in the run up to January 6th that Trump was intimately part of. And I think this is what the investigation has really yielded. A, that Trump's effort to overturn the election didn't start and end with January 6th. It started well before the election uh, in the summer of 2020, in the fall of 2020, when Steve Bannon was talking about, and, you know, Roger Stone too, you know, these, these Trump allies were talking about how, you know, they would just not accept the results if Trump lost. You know, this was predetermined prior to the election that they would do that. And of course, that is exactly what happened when Trump followed through on the plan. And then there were a number of key meetings in December the events that led up to Trump tweeting, January 6th, be there, it will be wild. And the committee has a lot of evidence, and the Justice Department has a lot of evidence to suggest that that tweet really galvanized the kind of the far-right extremists, the Trump supporters, who might not have otherwise arrived in Washington to protest on the 6th to come to the nation's capital. Trump, clearly the central figure. Nevertheless, there are other people uh, in the committee sites, always were. Uh, who else do you think might be, you know, having some legal alarm now and, and worry that they themselves could find the authorities coming for them? I mean, it's a very long list. And it's a very long list because, you know, we also spend our Fridays here in Washington staking out the federal courthouse uh, where a long, a long line of Trump aides in recent weeks have been paraded in front of the, uh, or at least two federal grand juries investigating events connected to January 6th. You know, you're looking at people in his inner orbit, people like John Eastman. John Eastman admitted in advance of the 2020 election that Mike Pence could not lawfully refuse to count official electoral votes. But he nevertheless devised a meritless proposal 
that deployed a combination of bogus election fraud claims and the fake electoral ballots to say that Mike Pence, presiding over the joint session, could reject legitimate electoral votes for President-elect Biden. But still, You look at some of the aides, for instance, who might not themselves have legal jeopardy, but knew what was going on around that time. And, you know, the Justice Department would definitely want them to testify and has made them testify before the grand jury is investigating January 6th. And so I don't think anyone really has an idea of how wide this potential legal exposure emanating from Trump is. But I think it's safe to assume that it could ensnare a lot of people in a, in a way that they might not have imagined when they were busy trying to overturn the election two years ago. You said rightly, right from the start uh, of the top of our conversation, that this doesn't determine, this doesn't tie the hands or bind the Department of Justice. They have It's merely a referral. They then have to decide. You know, you've been following as closely as anyone these last 18 months. What's your read of that big question, whether or not these turn into actual prosecutions of Donald Trump and the other people you've mentioned? We trust that the Department of Justice will be able to form a far more complete picture through its own investigation. I think it's become more complicated because we now have a special counsel, Jack Smith, who is investigating both the Mar-a-Lago documents case and the January 6th cases connected to Donald Trump. There is a theory percolating around the Justice Department and kind of former federal prosecutors that Smith will not want to indict on one uh, without coming to a determination as to whether he can indict on the other. Because they're kind of intertwined in many respects. The January 6th investigation is also itself very complicated. And proving these beyond a reasonable doubt and having a jury unanimously convict, I think, is a very difficult threshold. I think the Justice Department is going to have a tougher time than they might an ordinary uh, defendant in, in such a case. And, and clearly... Uh, I think that's that, that's applicable to Trump as opposed to, you know, the run of the mill January 6th rioter who's been prosecuted for storming the Capitol and obstructing an official proceeding. And you mentioned that the man who's going to make the big decision may want to wait till he's got all the ducks in a row rather than going just on one. What about time? Is there a time limit on this? Does the Department of Justice have a deadline by which they have to make that big, you know, that big push? Or is can they let all of these processes play out? It's a good question um, because there is no there's no hard deadline here, right? There's not like a statute of limit you know, limitations where they have to <clears throat> make a charging decision by X date. The only thing that will be on the mind, I think, of the Justice Department is the 2024 election. You know, the Justice Department is not supposed to influence elections, and let's say the Justice Department was to prosecute this at the earliest March. We don't think there will probably be a prosecution before that. Then you basically have a couple of months of pre-trial conference. You then have a trial that would last the summer. Then if Trump is convicted, Trump is obviously going to appeal. Again, you're going to have several months of pre-trial conference. You'll have the trial itself. And then that will probably bring you to the end of 2023. If the conviction is upheld at the appellate court, then Trump has to decide if he's going to appeal to SCOTUS. And if the Supreme Court takes up that appeal, hypothetically, that could last well into spring, summer 2024. And then all of a sudden, you're months away from the 2024 election. If Trump got convicted right before the 2024 election, it would completely upend the presidential race. 
Um, and especially because the Justice Department, you know, is part of the executive branch and because, you know, Biden is the head of the executive branch, it will be a whole new level of partisanship um, if that came to pass. And so I think, if anything, the Justice Department is held up by a political deadline where they're trying to, if they do indict, want to do this as quickly as possible so they don't run up straight into the 2024 presidential election. Talking of timing, these findings are coming out during uh, Christmas week and the run-up to Christmas. Uh, A lot of people were impressed by how the committee played their sort of public game. Those TV hearings were seen as very well produced and well staged and got a national audience paying attention. What about this stage, these findings, this decision coming out when people have got their minds on other things, the run-up to Christmas and clocking off work and so on? Uh, Do you think this is going to miss its target in terms of landing with the public? Or do you think just the degree of interest in this case means, yeah, people are going to put aside the uh, baubles they were hanging on the Christmas tree and pay attention? I think they just about got away with it. I mean, Monday the 19th of December is probably your last chance saloon to make sure any news you make ends up on kind of cable TV and the evening news programs. I think they've just managed to do it. The committee would say, well, our goal wasn't to refer Trump to the Justice Department. Our goal was to bring into the public consciousness everything that Trump and Republicans were doing in the post-election period to try and you know, overturn his defeat. And I think in that sense, the committee succeeded in a massive way. I think there was a lot of effort by Republicans to try and say, well, you know, you know, the threats to democracy, as it had been termed, wasn't a core voting issue in 2022. And that's actually exactly what it was. Abortion and democracy um, were two things that appeared to be on the forefront of voters' minds. So in that sense, I think the committee did very well. And they were able to show, you know, this multi-part scheme to overturn the election. And I think actually, even now, you might say the referrals are coming very late, the final report's coming very late. I think the committee would argue, well, no one was probably going to read cover to cover of a thousand page report anyway. You know, we got all of our findings out of the way in the summer. People know what happened. And then this is effectively the coda to our investigation with referrals. And that's coming on the right side of probably the Christmas deadline. Hugo Lowell, thanks so much for joining me on this special episode uh, of Politics Weekly America during what is yet another extraordinary week in Washington, D.C. Hugo, thank you. Thank you. If we are to survive as a nation of laws and democracy, this can never happen again. And that is all from me. We're going to take a short break to recharge the batteries. So for this Friday and next, we'll be revisiting a couple of our favourite episodes of the year. I'll be back for a brand new episode on, funnily enough, January the 6th. Don't forget that the Guardian and Observer's 2022 charity appeal is raising funds for charities working on the front line of the cost of living crisis. All donations will go to Citizens Advice and to Locality to help support local grassroots projects, which aim to support those who've been hit hardest. You can find the link to donate on this week's episode description on the Guardian website. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens, the executive producer, Maz Ebtahaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Happy holidays and thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Hold up. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.